Hi, this is Simon Barber. And this is Brian O'Connor. From So The Jerker on Songwriting. And we're this week's guests on Metapod. You're listening to Metapod, where we unpack the web's most interesting podcasts and the stories behind them. Hosted by Wendy Morrill and Kevin May. Happy New Year, Kev. And a Happy New Year to you, Wendy. Thank you. And Happy New Year to Metapod listeners, too. We received some very kind feedback from listeners after our special year-end episode last month. So thank you very much for that. Yes, we're glad people enjoyed the Meta 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 Metapod episode. <laughs> that was uh, number 37. And we should say that we especially appreciated the long list of suggestions from one of our loyal listeners. Hello, mm. Rob. Mm-hmm. about what we could ask each other if we were invited back to the show as guests sometime in the future. There's a huge amount of doubt as whether we're going to invite ourselves back again. But anyway, yeah. thanks, Rob. If. So, yeah, yeah those were excellent ideas, <clears throat> Rob. And um, Kev, didn't you say that you're fully booked, though, for Metapod 16 Chili Chats through 2030? Doesn't seem like <laughs> we're going to have time in our schedule unless, of course, donuts are involved. I can usually make time for donuts. Uh, we all can we all can and uh, there you go listeners so Wendy will work for donuts forever I think it's probably safe to say right forever well okay <laughs> I will I also work to get the best possible guests here on Metapod even when no donuts are involved uh, you indeed you do and this week's guests are a excellent case in point so mm. two guys that we've wanted to have on Metapod pretty much since we started that's Simon Barber and Brian O'Connor of Soda Jerker on Songwriting Podcast. Yep, podcast royalty, I believe you like to call them, Kev. <laughs> and for good reason, Soda Jerker on Songwriting recently celebrated its 10th year as an independent podcast featuring some of the world's most successful songwriters. You know, some is an understatement given the number of episodes and the calibre of the guests that Simon and Brian have brought to the show. True. It's an all-star list from Paul McCartney, uh, Niall Rogers and Alicia Keys to St. Vincent, Johnny Marr and, and of course, Weird Al Yankovic, who can forget him. There really is something for everyone who loves music in the Soda Jerker interview archive. So true. And a year after our first invitation to the guys, they found some time for us and Metapod. So... Kev, should we do that thing? I believe we should. Let's start the tape. Simon and Brian, welcome to Metapod. Thanks for joining us to talk about Soda Jerker on songwriting. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, yeah. Kevin and I are very happy to finally host you on the show here. When we first started Metapod last year, Soda Jerker was one of the first music-related podcasts that we hoped to host on the show. So here we are finally, even though Brian's about 10 minutes late. Apologies again. <laughs> so Soda Jerker on songwriting uh, features interviews with the world's most successful songwriters and soda jerker is not a word that falls off my tongue easily and not one that people use every day. Tell us about the name of the podcast to start off. Well, it was um, a word that Brian found in an article. He was We were looking for a name for our songwriting partnership. And Brian was reading an interview with the director, Sidney Pollock. And he said that his acting career had failed because he was always cast as the soda jerk. And Brian thought this was an interesting phrase and looked it up. And of course, it refers to people in diners in American culture, um, probably somewhere between the 30s and the 50s, where they would be, you know, working soda fountains and and making things with short order cooks and that sort of thing. So we looked it up and tried to find some more information about it. And there was an article, an academic article called The Linguistic Concoctions of the Soda Jerker. And it was about how um, in this culture, these people used really creative ways to name all the dishes that they had on the menu. They would call a cup of tea scandal soup, or they would call a glass of milk cow juice, or whatever it might be. So they they come up with all these creative alternate ways to describe things. And we just thought, first of all, we love the word. Secondly, the 
the domain and the handle was free everywhere we could find. And then finally we thought, well, that's a great metaphor for, you know, creating magic out of the everyday, which is what the songwriter does. So we'll go with that. So you focus on successful songwriters. Um, what are the main criteria of success that you are working with? Hmm. I mean, I guess success, you know, you, you define success on your own terms. What well, we do. Um yeah, I guess just people who've whose songs have gotten out there into the world, really, and and you know, um... people who who've made a name for themselves with their songs, and probably since we we've got full editorial control of the show, it's people whose songs we admire really more than anything else. Um, obviously, as the show has become more successful, we get offered more and more people that we're not particularly familiar with, and some of those people, you know, we'll check out their work, and if we love it, then we might well have them on the show. Um, so. It's a constantly expanding exercise for us, really, in determining who comes on. Um, but really, it's just entirely grounded in whether or not we like the music. We don't tend to do anything we don't really enjoy. So um, that's why we can afford to be quite enthusiastic about the people who come on, you know. I think an interesting part of of, of your process is the selection, and you've kind of outlined it a little bit already, but I wonder what is the the influence of publicists and record companies and PRs in getting their people in front of you to be interviewed. Well, that's, so that's quite you. significant. Now, yeah. it, um, when we started, you know, we were the ones doing all the running, really. We were sending out emails and stuff to publicists, managers, because, you know, we, we needed to get off the ground and nobody knew yeah. who we were. You know, we sort of looked out initially with, with getting some pretty big guests on, Todd Runger and Jimmy Webb, for example. And then that just gave us a bit more leverage when we'd send out further requests to people. And then just as once we established ourselves and we had, you know, say maybe 40, 50 episodes under our belts, that's when the tide turned really. And um, we started to find we were getting a lot of requests. And now at this stage, you know, on the eve of our 10th anniversary, we're um, we're sort of 99%. It's offers coming in from publicists. And that includes, you know, the big guns, the marquee names, yeah. um, that, that those are offered to us. A lot of them, you know, people we've approached early on in the <laughs> podcast and gotten a very swift rebuttal. But now they're, they're sort of, um, they've realised our might. And uh, <laughs> no, not really. No, but we've just, you know, we've, we've stuck around long enough to to sort of prove ourselves and and I think we've we've earned the position we're in now, really. Was there, was there a particular episode that you said you said you got to about fifty, and then it kind of tipped over the edge, and now you're getting more approaches than you have to? Was there an episode that you would say is the one that just sent you into the kind of the, the consciousness of publicists, artists, and stuff like that, or was it more of a collective stream of just really good episodes? Probably a blend of consistency and then having some of those big names on, I would think. But I always felt like Paul Simon was a bit of a tipping point for us. Because obviously it's someone you don't have to explain who that is to pretty much anybody on the planet, you know. Right. And um, it just felt that once we were offered that person, then it seemed possible that we could be offered almost anybody. So um, I feel like Paul Simon was the turning point, but uh, it may well have come along sooner than that. People may have regarded the show in that way sooner, but it just, I'm not sure really. How willing are writers to reveal their creative processes? I mean, have you ever had to deal with someone who didn't really want to talk about certain things? No one's ever sort of prescribed, you know, what they want to talk about or, or anything like that in terms of the, the work. Some people are more forthcoming just because they're more attuned to how they do things. They, they're connected. They're really connected to that part of their brain and they can articulate how it is to go about their work, whereas other people... They don't really know how and, and they don't necessarily want to analyse it too much, maybe because they fear it'll go away if they sort of dissect it. But even with those people, like, you know, the, the latter category, for instance, you, Diane Warren, I, I put in that category. You know, she's someone, she's very she's very straight talking, but she also she doesn't go into tremendous amounts of detail. So when you interview someone like her, you have got a kind of prod. You just try and squeeze out as much as you can, really. That was our experience. I think that's that's the general experience. Whereas other people like um, like a Mike Viola or a Dan Wilson or someone like that, you know, they just they just seem to be able to go. Well, I started here and then I did this and then this made me think of this and then I go. 
and and, and Andy Parks, which is another classic example, really, um, of, of someone who you can just articulate how he does things so well to the point where you, it just it almost sounds easy. They make it sound so easy, but you know when you sit down and try to do it the way they they do it, it's not so easy. So yeah, but no, nothing's ever really off limits. No one ever says, "Oh, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to talk about that." You just some people are able to talk about whatever, and other people aren't necessarily. Yeah, I mean, songwriters in general, they're not necessarily built to be talkers. A lot of the stuff that they do comes out in the music, you know. So you're very lucky when you find someone who is great verbally and also creatively, you know. Mm-hmm. Is that is that quite rare then? Do you think? I mean, I think we've we've got lucky with our line of questioning because even with very creative people who don't necessarily talk that much, because we're not asking them typical kinds of things that journalists might want to know about their personal lives or whatever, because we're only interested in the craft and we can sort of indicate to them that we understand the craft, they do tend to open up. So most of our experiences have been great, really, in terms of getting material from people, but there are some who are better than others. We were we were talking before we went on air, Simon, about your interview with uh, uh, Lindsay Buckingham, and you said that uh, you know you concentrated very much, and you sensed that he enjoyed the conversation with you because he spoke just about the craft and his discipline as a songwriter, rather than maybe some of the more tabloid uh, friendly elements of his of his backstory. Do you think that's something that's reflected across a lot of the people that you talk to, that they just appreciate this opportunity to talk about their craft rather than, as you say, being drilled by annoying tabloid hacks? <laughs> I think so, yeah. I mean, people have commented on that through the, the run of the show. People have often said to us that they can hear a kind of audible moment where there's like an unlocking of the guest where hmm. they, they might start the first five minutes treating it like any other interview. And then once they hear the tone of our questions and the sorts of things we're interested in and the fact that we seem to have a knowledge of the back catalogue and stuff, then they will start to say, oh, okay, well, how about this and how about that? And they'll open up much more than um, they might ordinarily. And I think Gilbert O'Sullivan was one kind of classic example of that. The first five minutes, he's, I wouldn't say brusque, but he's, you know, he's fairly um, straightforward in his communications. And then as we start to ask him more and more about deeper things in his catalogue, you, you hear him sort of go, oh, well, okay, um, you know, that that's interesting that you've done that research. I'm impressed that you know that and things like that. And then by the end, he's saying, people just usually ask me about my hair. This is great, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> so that was a really nice one for, for see, hearing someone melt, you know. I Forgive me, what is it about his hair to people to ask him? He's just had a, got a very distinctive hairstyle that he's had for many years now. Maybe how he maintains it, I don't know. It's very voluminous. <laughs> What are some of the themes that have emerged over the course of the podcast or themes that have maybe also faded out? Could you pick a few? I'd say when we first started, we were probably more driven to talk about the famous songs that people have written. Okay. And I think that was just not naivety, but it's probably thinking, well, the audience are going to really want to know about this famous song so we have to ask about it and that was probably to our detriment in some cases because some of those songwriters have talked about those songs over and over and they might have well-worn stories about that song that everybody knows or they might just be less enthusiastic you know when they when they feel like they have to tell that story for the hundredth time you're not getting anything kind of fresh or exciting in their mind, they're just on autopilot. So we moved away from the kind of jukebox episode quite early on and started to get deeper into creativity and process, but also the newer work that they were doing, because obviously most artists are excited about what they've done recently and they really don't want to have to rehash the past. But what we found is that if you get them on board by talking about what they're doing now and you get a sense of their creativity you either learn by default what they did on those older songs because mm. you know how they work anyway, or they'll start telling you about those older songs because yeah. they're in such a good place at that point that they want to say, oh, and when I did this one and this one, you know, and so you can then get to ask about the famous songs at that point if you want to. How about failures? I mean, do those get spoken about alongside of the successes just by default? I don't know. if the, I mean, we don't tend to 
necessarily ask directly about failures. You know, I guess the key is to sort of be as, be as positive as we can, really, to keep them keep them on our side. You know, I, I guess it's how you define failures, really. I mean, there's plenty hmm. of songs a lot of people have written that are very good songs, but were never commercial hits. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'll happily ask about those songs, songs that maybe didn't reach the wider world, but are kind of deep cuts on albums and things like that, if, if we're interested in them. Um, but we don't really think in terms of, I mean, is that the kind of failure you mean, like commercial failure or artistic? It could be either. I, I mean, I'm thinking about David Duchovny discussing some things that he maybe felt were not as strong as others and that you need to have those things to have right. the good things, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess he, he's an example of someone who's just perfectly I mean he's just a very open honest guy I think so even though that album had just come out he was sort of commenting on oh maybe the music could have been stronger or you know the lyrics were good but maybe the music isn't as strong which yeah I hadn't thought about that actually till you mentioned it but that was quite a, an honest thing to say for, about an album that's literally <laughs> just come out like two weeks ago he had quite a few honest things to say yeah yeah, I guess because he's so new to the process as well and he's still finding his feet. And that, that made that an interesting episode for us, actually, because um, he's only been doing it a few years. So he's still, his songwriting career is very much in its infancy and he's still sort of making, you know, making mistakes and stumbling around and trying to find his, his voice as a as a music artist. So, yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's one way I guess you can, you can broach failures. If the, if the guest, like, brings it up, then great, you know, we'll we'll go there. And But we might not necessarily... Um, we wouldn't say, oh, you know, do you not think this tune could have been a bit stronger? What about, what about this line here? You know, you should spend a bit more time on that. Yeah. I think, you know, we, we might risk being hung up on. We, we do sometimes hear about different kinds of failure, though, like in the collaborative pr- process, you know? Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of people we've spoken to get into a room with a pop star and have to try and generate something in a few hours. And we've had people comment on how that's quite a difficult thing to do. And sometimes, it, you know, no magic happens at all. And there are plenty of failures in the sort of professional co-writing scene. But of course, you only really hear about the successes, you know, because mm. people tell those stories. I went into the room with Adele and we uh, came up with this hook. And then five minutes later, we had the song. And then, hey, it's a number one hit. And people love to tell those stories, but they don't tell you about the 50 other sessions okay. where, you know, they got together and wrote a song and it was mediocre or nothing really came yeah. together, you know. Marina, who we had on recently from uh, Marina and the Diamonds, she was quite candid about her co-writing experiences. Like, she's had some great experiences, but other times it's not gone so well. And she described one situation where she just had to call a halt to it. Not because she didn't like the person or anything, like that but the the chemistry just wasn't there just wasn't happening so she just cut it short so that that happens a lot I guess as well I think Gretchen Peters had a similar example when we spoken to her and she said uh, that she'd been paired with someone in kind of a Nashville co-writing scenario and it turned out that the guy was like maybe a couple of decades older than her at the time and, you know, turned up with like a, a bottle of alcohol and was just like, you know, in a completely different place in his life than she was. And I think they looked at each other and said, this isn't going to work, is it? Should we go and have dinner or something like that? <laughs> and they just knew that it was a waste of time, you know? I, I guess uh, creative limitations is maybe another way to say it. And I think Moby describes this. He says that he's not a good singer. He doesn't have a good voice or something to this effect. So he knows that if he wants to have that piece of a song right, he needs to work with someone. He goes on to describe really preferring at this point in his career to work with older, quite seasoned people, which... Um, comes off quite shocking, I think, to hear at first, but I think he gives his reasons for it. I mean, in in terms of how you, I think you've talked about it a little bit, but dealing with people who are early career versus much later in their career, how are you handling that uh, conversation with them? The same way as we talk to the um, the grizzled veterans, you know, it's <laughs> you, you just treat them with respect. That they're, they're artists. They're they're not as far down the road as some, but they've got perfectly valid things to say. Um, and often those are the most fun ones to do. Like it's interesting because early on, I think not maybe not like totally consciously, but we didn't really go after younger artists. A lot of the people on our list were the established figures. And then as time went on, we started to be offered some some of these younger artists and things. And we'd, we'd maybe, I think we were still in that mode of, oh, 
you know, the jukebox episode, well, what songs can we ask about? They haven't had any, you know, massive hits that everybody knows. They've only got one album or a couple of EPs out or whatever. What are we going to... And then with experience, we, we just came to realize, well, we, we can... I, th- I think that's what we needed. We needed to become more experienced as interviewers to be able to speak to these younger artists and, mm-hmm. and eke out interesting stuff. Whereas, obviously, early on, if you've got a Todd Rundgren or, or a Jimmy Webb, there's such a wealth of material that you spoil for choice, really, and what yeah. you can talk about. But, um, but yeah, I think, um, I, I can't speak for side, but I find those, like, Maisie Peters or, or, or you know, Marina or Declan McKenna or, or those kinds of people, not more interesting, but just very interesting in a different way to to the more established artists because they're, they're relatively new to it, they Enthusiasm. I don't know if they're more enthusiastic, but there's just a freshness there. No, it's always exciting to speak to those younger artists. I mean, they've come up in a completely different way than mm. some of the older ones. You know, they've come up in a completely digitally enabled, technological mm. kind of world, you know, and they, I think they have quite a different um, attitude towards the process. Some of them really will, like a Jack Savaretti, for example, talked about how they combined the writing and the recording process. So he was almost trying to write as he was recording it in order to get that sort of demo freshness that people are always trying to chase, you know? I think, as Brian said, you know, the more experienced we became and the less we tried to focus on hit songs and more on songwriting and creativity as a process, as a craft, um, we were able to speak to those people on that level and just talk about how they work and not worry too much about, you know, what kind of uh, hits they'd had. Have you had, have you noticed any, um, if, if you can generalise, differences in the kind of the product other than technology because that's transformed everything but are there any differences in the the process with songwriting and creating records that you notice between the emerging artists now and say some that have a 30 40 year old career they just approach it in a different way it would probably be hard to generalize because some of those people of the older generation uh, surround themselves with young people you know, either in their bands or in the studio. And so yeah. things are probably happening in quite an advanced modern way anyway. But just in terms of the the craft, some of the old school people are much more likely to say, well, I set a routine for myself and I get up at, and I go into the office at 9am and I write on my piano. And when I've got something good, then I'll, I'll develop it or take it to a band at that point to make a record later. Whereas I think those separate stages of, writing recording etc have, have really been compressed and compacted by the young people they don't really see them they're, they're much more likely to go straight into the studio get a beat up and start doing something over that and they're, they're making the mm. record before they've even written the song mm. yeah it's interesting uh, something that i i think would i'm sure you've been asked this many times before but you know in many walks of life, they would say, don't meet your heroes or don't meet people that you really ab- admire because your perception of them might be ruined. So I suspect you're not going to tell me the names of those, of those types that have happened. But is that something that's happened that you've been so looking forward to talking to somebody that you've admired their work and their public utterances in the past and you've come away thinking, oh, God, he, she was nothing like I expected and I a bit disappointed um yeah, that's I, happened <laughs> yeah maybe i mean the I can think of a couple. <laughs> uh, yeah i mean we've been very lucky in general like you know we've done in terms of in-person meetings we, we've done about maybe 60 odd episodes where we yeah. did the interview in person and you know i can't think of i can't think of anyone who was who was difficult really maybe some people are more friendly and open than others. Some people are a bit more professional about the whole thing and there's not much small talk when you're setting up the mics and things like that, you know, you know, but that's, that's fine. Cause often these people are doing, you know, they're doing a day of, of press and um, it's like a junket yeah. situation and it's just one person after the other, just filing in and out. And so in those sets, we're, we're very conscious. We're, we're two of the most self-aware people on the planet, I think. So we're very conscious of just getting in there, not getting in the way, not, hanging around too long afterwards, just getting in there, getting set up, you know, use our allocated time and get out of there and leave them to the rest of their day. So in that, in that sense, you know, we, 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 do, we go out of our way not to piss people off. Whereas I think maybe other <laughs> journalists and, and uh, maybe don't do that, you know, and maybe go in there with, with the intention of pissing the person off, depending on what their agenda is. Yep. Um, yeah. 
I think there's been a f- couple of awkward encounters, maybe. Yeah, um, nothing's ever really shut down and stopped or come to a no. halt. But there's been a couple of frosty people that we've had to pile on some charm to uh, to get them to sort of play ball. You know. Yeah, there was there was one Zoom interview last year. I won't say who it was with, <laughs> and you'd be you'd be surprised actually. Um, someone everyone would know. Someone, someone you'd know, and and someone not, you know, of, of quite a cheery disposition, said publicly anyway. But it was a he. Let's say it was a he. That's that's as much as I'm going to give you. But he, he was just not happy about the whole Zoom thing. We got onto Zoom with him. He was on camera, and someone else was assisting him to get the whole thing set up. And and when you, we saw him when he appeared on camera, he was sort of sat off to one side, kind of sulking. Or he appeared to be sulking, and then when he, uh, he he handed over the mic to him, the first question was, um, "I've got a question. Why couldn't this be done over the phone?" <laughs> so we were like, "Well, um, we it just could went, have been. we love you." Yeah, no, we were like, "Well, it, it totally could have been." You know, we didn't realize you had a problem with with Zoom and being on camera, and he was like, "No, I just prefer, you know, prefer to be on the phone, prefer to look out the window and and think about what I'm saying. I don't want to look at the people I'm talking to." He said. <laughs> but we just we rallied. I think if that had happened there very early on in our time doing this, we would have be, we had a bit of a wobble. To be honest, it would have thrown us off. But quite experienced now, so we just said, "Look, whatever you want to do, if you want to just switch your camera off, you know, it doesn't have to be on camera." And he, so we did that, and then we carried on. And, and the interview, you would never know. You'd never know from the interview that there was any problem at the beginning, right? But it was an instance of someone being, wow, like, well, you know, I, really, I think if, if there'd just be more communication with the publicist and they'd said, look, can this be a phoner? We would have been fine with it. We, all, we want them to be as comfortable as possible and as relaxed as possible. We, we don't want to upset anybody or anything like that. I, I suppose related to that then, I mean, I, I'm a journalist and interview maybe 15, 20 people a week for the day job wow. and never nervous about anybody I interview. and for fear of plugging a book that I've been writing for a long time. I've been writing a book for quite a while, and it's about the origin story of Depeche Mode's Violator, the album from 1990. And I went to interview, um, I interviewed Francois Kevorkian, who was the mixer for that. He's a very famous um, DJ and producer back in the 80s. And I was terrified when I went to interview him, just because he was someone that I really admired rather than somebody I had to interview for the day job. So anyway, the point of the question is, do you ever get nervous with specific people that you're about to interview just because either you've admired them, you've heard about perhaps their interview reputation or anything like that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, we'd have to be crazy not to have been nervous to walk into a room with Paul Simon or Paul McCartney. Or, right. Yeah. You know. Even, you know, Alicia Keys, you know, these are very, very prominent people and uh, well-respected and, you know, have international profiles. And so you're not nervous to kind of walk in and say hello to them. You're more nervous about your own performance. Will Mm. you do a good job? Will it go well? You know, because you don't want to blow that opportunity, really. So yeah, You don't want them to think you're an idiot, in other words. Yeah, basically. (laughs) I mean, usually those kind of nerves fade within the first... 30 seconds because you realize okay well we've got a job to do here and if i spend it being nervous i'm not going to get a good result so mm-hmm. there's no time to be nervous i just have to deliver so you just get into it and do it and usually people put you at the at your ease as well you know most people are really friendly and uh, once you're in a conversation you're not thinking about nerves anymore really right yeah i mean to be honest i'm i'm personally i'm i'm nervous before each one it doesn't really matter really who the guest is it's a controlled nerves, but it's it's the, the nerves are there. I don't know. I don't think they were that much more pronounced for for Paul McCartney than they were for I don't know James Blunt or someone. You know what I mean? Because again, as I says, you 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 want to go and you want to give a good account of yourself. You want you want to come out of there with good material. You know, you want all the recording equipment to work properly and and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. You don't want people to be banging around in the background making all kinds of noise. You know. Oh, that's that's another thing that plays into our nerves. I think is the sort of the extraneous circumstances that we can't control. We can go in there and, and we can ask our questions. We can record the thing, but you know you've just got to hope and pray you'll be in a quiet room. There won't be people coming in and out. There won't be traffic noise outside. The, you know all all the sorts of things that can potentially ruin an interview situation. So it's all those things that kind of play on your mind before you're going in there. And then, as I says, once you go in and you, you start talking, you, you just 
you just go with it. You just ride the wave, really. And they're on a tight schedule. You've got maybe 30 minutes if it's an in-person thing or 45 minutes. So so it's all, it's very tightly uh, focused. You know, we don't go in there and just have a rambly kind of chat. Uh, we go in there with a very specific set of things we want to get out of them. And that mm. helps as well with the nerves because you're not going, you know, you're not going to have to sit there coming up with things off the top of your head kind of thing. I mean, you two are podcast royalty, so obviously we were terrified before we interviewed you today. <laughs> Could we talk a little bit about the broader music industry? I don't know that it comes up a lot in your interviews unless people specifically comment on it, but what place does songwriting have currently in the industry, and is that different than it was in the past? I think it's always been extremely important i mean you know historically the music industry was built around songwriting wasn't it you know tim pan alley and then through other major sort of songwriting movements like in the 50s with the brill building and major labels that have had huge catalogs of success like motown were all built around songwriting teams and then you know the sort of pop world has benefited from a kind of very organized approach to songwriting with teams like Stock Aiken and Waterman and Xenomania and other outfits um, alongside, of course, the sort of independent ingenuity of bands and the way that they write songs. So I think songwriting is the fount of new material for the music industries. If you're talking about Western commercial pop, we see it as as central, really, and that's why we're so interested in it. Um, Of course, that doesn't mean that songwriters are always treated very well in by the music industries. I mean, the, the entire history of the music industries is about exploiting creative labor, isn't it? Whether mm. it's paying, uh, you know, paying artists pennies on records or whatever. And, and that hasn't really changed much in the era of Spotify. So yeah, it's, it's not um, the most fair situation, but I think um, there'll always be a place for songwriters because what else would they be promoting if not songs? Are there new developments that affect songwriters in particular in, say, the last 10 years? I think there's probably an increasing awareness of the role of technology in songwriting and how barriers to access that kind of technology have come down so much now. And there's so many uh, instruments available in DAWs, you know, like Logic, you've got soft synths and you've got all this stuff that people can use to make sounds almost anybody can create something that sounds like a song these days and you know probably make a pretty good sounding record from it as well and then there's you know artificial intelligence is encroaching on that somewhat now there's a lot of apps being generated which are designed to use machine learning and other ai technologies in order to generate suggestions for you and opportunities for you when you're writing so Songwriters can say, well, I need a chord sequence or I need a lyric for this. And um, AI, which has been trained on tens of thousands of songs, can then make suggestions for you. So whether that has an impact on opportunities for human songwriters to continue economically is another matter. But I can't see we're at the stage yet where that sort of technology is going to take over, to be honest, uh, because the suggestions that are made by those kinds of uh, apps are, by and large, nonsensical and they they mostly rely on just tropes or patterns that they've discerned from existing catalogues of songs and in a way you could argue that that's just what songwriters do anyway they listen to lots of songs and then try and produce things that sound like songs uh, or sound like things they've loved in the past Um, but there's something about human creativity and ingenuity that just imbues things with a meaning that i don't think you get yet from artificial intelligence you're not worried about having to interview a bot at some point in the future that's created. <laughs> I, would, I would love that. That would be great. <laughs> um, you you said you don't focus too much on, you know, the extraneous drama around some songs and, and artists and albums, but are there psychological struggles that artists talk to you about um, in performing or writing? I, I mean, I guess the classic thing is the, writer's block situation which um is it's interesting actually some writers very much believe in it and others don't think it exists at all and just think it's you know i think jason isbell said to us once uh there's no such thing as plumber's block um so you know it's it's like your job 
so right. Um, you know, I think maybe a lot of people when they talk about writer's block, there's no good ideas are coming. Doesn't mean that, you know, ideas come to you all the time. Your head's always swirling around with ideas and thoughts. At your worst, you could still write a song, I guess, is what people who don't believe in writer's block are saying. There is a, there's always a song there. It might just, just might not be a very good one, but, um, you know, some songwriters would uh, advocate that you, you write those anyway. You write the bad songs to get to the good ones, keep the muscle working, just, just show up. I suppose maybe um, some people, because of their kind of gregarious nature and their outgoing personalities, they're much more likely to survive in a collaborative environment. So mm-hmm. some of the people we've interviewed talk of themselves as lone wolves. They'll write alone and they only work alone, mainly not because they're antisocial, but because they just don't function well in that kind of collaborative environment. And certainly a commercial pop music is made very much in a collaborative environment. So um, I wonder whether that might have an impact on on opportunities for songwriters, you know. But people, they, they tend to be quite happy with the way that they work. When they tell us about writing alone, they don't sort of couch it in terms of their own kind of um, psychological issues. They just say, that's the way I like to write. Yeah. And often they're, they're really happy to be working that way you know yeah a lot of them just trust in their own process really joan armor trading she was one person who said she just kind of knows you know she's not in writing mode all the time um but she knows when the time comes to write a new album she'll be able to write a new album because she's been doing it for 45 years you know so she knows how to do it and she's confident that once she sits down at the piano or with the guitar that songs will come she just trusts in it um, and I think there's a, there's a few people who think the same way, you know. What is your biggest creative difference between the two of you? And what mm. do you trust each, of each other the most? Great question. Um, I mean, I'd say Sai is, is by far the strongest in terms of lyrics. Sai was writing lyrics when we were back in school and I f- we first became friends when we were sort of 13, 14. So I was already writing lyrics and poetry and stuff, reams of it. That's that's something I've always struggled with personally, just accessing that part of my brain. It just doesn't it just doesn't come naturally to me at all. Whereas sitting and coming up with chord sequences, coming up with tunes, riffs and things that I, I find I don't want to say easy, but I, that comes to me just more naturally than than words. I really struggle to um I can come up with a concept for a song and a good decent line here and there and maybe a title, but fashioning that into, you know, several verses and a couple of choruses and a bridge, that's that's the tricky bit for me terms of lyrics we're quite different people aren't we i suppose brian is um I'm, i guess i'm more organized and sort of um meticulous about things and brian is more the free spirit the creative wanderer um, and that's probably why he's so good I'm the eccentric at genius who just wanders in you know <laughs> that's why he's so good at chords and melody and uh I, I think in recent weeks when we've been writing together we've sort of slipped into a almost like an old-fashioned kind of Tim Pan Alley kind of mode where Brian's at the piano and I'm sort of pacing the room and coming up with melodies and singing, coming up with lines, you know, and and uh, I think it's quite a nice model. It seems to work for us, although it does produce a particular type of song, all the things that we've got recently. Not like show tunes, but they, you know, they are kind of piano and voice. So it's, it's quite interesting what's come out of that, but... Um, yeah, we're, we're very different as people, I think, but um, we share so many of the same interests. I guess I rely on Brian more for his unerring instincts than anything else. He'll he'll always tell you that's the right move or that's the wrong move, and uh, he's usually right. We're, what we have in common is we're both just looking, always looking for something memorable. You know, when you when we're writing. I mean, I've, I've said this in a couple of other sorts of interviews we've done. I, I always need to feel like what's that what's happening is necessary there has to be there has to be something that propels you along if it's a if, you know maybe a riff or a chord change or something in the lyric or there's got to be something that you just go oh and 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 that's what drives you on to finish the thing and 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 that you know that becomes maybe a, a hook line in the song or a feature of the song i'm not a fan of songs that just kind of exist and they just kind of have all the bits and you know, well, I guess it's a song, but nothing really sort of grabs you by the throat. Or not that every song has to bash you over the head with constant hooks, but 
you just hear a lot of songs that maybe you think that this need to be written, you know, or is it just some songs just sound like exercises in songwriting as opposed to, uh, you know, a result of, of inspiration. Right. So we, we always, we both have a kind of, I mean, this is just dating back to when we first wrote things together, you know, it always had to be someone had to play something, a riff or something on the piano, something on the guitar. Oh, and one of us would latch on uh, or there'd be a lyrical concept or something or, or and, and, and that would propel the thing forward there had to be something that caught the other one's ear which we then just sort of bashed around until it fashioned it into a song okay well let's let's see if we can find out quite how different you are and let's do a quick fire round if that's okay with you <laughs> it's like mr and mrs do i have to wear the special headphones this, this is a bit like mr and mrs it's almost like the smash hits kind of quick fire stuff that you would get in the 80s so okay. um, i'll go into my soundproof booth yeah, yeah. I don't think this is going to be too difficult for you. So, right. And some of these are just blatantly obvious things that we would ask you. So, Simon, uh, your favourite band or musician of all time? Paul Simon. Right. Got to be the Beatles. Okay. Obvious but true. Okay. Simon, your favourite band or musician when you were a teenager, if it was different? Probably Pearl Jam. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a divisive one, Pearl Jam, we find. Yeah. Uh, for me... Um, one of the bands I heavily got into as a teenager was the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So around the age of 14, 15, it was the Red Hot Chili Peppers, especially because I was learning bass at the time as well, and I was obsessed with Flea. Okay, and the last one from me before Wendy takes over is your favourite artwork of all time, Simon? Ooh, uh... I suppose Brian's got the advantage here because he gets to hear the question and let you answer. <laughs> you yeah. have is this, this, is this album artwork? Yeah, let's say albums, yeah. Oh, right, okay. I was going through uh, my art history class then. <laughs> Album artwork. Um, you know, it's interesting because I don't tend to do best ofs or make lists because I oh, like damn. so many things that I don't tend to go, that is my favourite. Um, well, we've done that thing that a lot of the artists that you interview dislike, which is that kind of journalist thing where we ask you really <laughs> crap questions. So I apologise, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, okay, I'll go with um, Steve McQueen, Prefab Sprouse. Oh. I guess I'll go with... McCartney, McCartney's first solo album, the 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 cherries, yep, the bowl of cherries. I like that in the kind of okay. abstract style of that cover, and that they didn't go for the. I think it was originally supposed to be the photo of Paul with baby Mary in his um, coat that was going to be the front, and then at the last minute they decided to go with Linda's um, kind of abstract photo with a bowl of cherries, and I've always liked that cover, so I'll go I'll go with that one. All right, Brian, I'm going to hit you up again right now. Favorite live gig of all time. Oh, okay. Sparks, 2008 in uh, the Islington Academy, playing uh, Little Beethoven. I mean, I'm a huge Sparks fan anyway, and there's just such an amazing vibe in the room. I think I saw them at the Big Chill the same year, the festival. Right, it may sorry. have been when they were on a particular tour or something, and they were terrific. Yeah, was, I mean, they're great. Terrific. I've seen them over yeah. a dozen times yeah. <laughs> at this point, but that was a run of gigs they did. Um at that point, they had 21 albums and they played each of their albums on consecutive nights oh, wow. across like May and June in 2008. So I went to about half a dozen of those. The Little Beethoven one stands out as being particularly cool. special because that, that album, the, the, the performance of that album as well had a kind of theatrical element to it, which sort of made it quite different from the other albums where they were pretty much playing them straight, you know, just with the straight back and band and stuff. Yeah. Simon? Um Saw Prince in Manchester many years ago, and that was uh, quite the show. The fair, oh, that would have been 2002. Rainbow Children tour, it was. He's, he's great with dates. Um, <laughs> November, <yeah>. I believe. <laughs> what row were we in, Brian? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, yeah. In, I know we're in the stalls. That's all I can remember. Yeah, no, that was something else. Okay, Brian, favourite album of all time? I won't go for a Beatles album because my favourite Beatles album changes by the day. So, um, <laughs> what is it today? Uh, today it will probably be Rubber Soul. Okay, but, oh, um, Mondays, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'll go for what a Ram, Paul McCartney, Paul and Linda McCartney. Okay, Simon, favourite album of all time. I was asked this once, and I did uh, Steve McQueen by Prefab Sprout, so I can't say that again. Yeah, you can't say um, that again. I'll just have to go with something else. Um, Purple Rain. Tomorrow it'll be something else. 
It's kind of related to the question about gigs that um, Wendy asked. Do you find if you're at a gig that you appreciate the music that you're hearing differently now that you've been doing your podcast than perhaps just absorbing the experience of being in a concert? Are you finally tuned into the songwriting, in other words? No, no more so than, than I was before we started the podcast, I wouldn't say. I think mm. a gig is, is just maybe listening to albums. Yeah, yeah, maybe we're a bit more analytical now, than, yeah. which is annoying in a way because, you know, it prevents you from just immersing yourself in a thing and enjoying it for its own sake. But in terms of gigs, no, because that, that, that's just a whole other sensory experience, isn't it? So, you know, yeah. you, you still, I mean, it's, it's a couple of years now as well since I've been to a gig as it is for most people. But... Yeah, I can I can lose myself in a gig a lot more than I can maybe listen to a to an album these days. Yeah. And we're coming to the end now. So we're just kind of running through some of our final questions. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe Simon then. Um, is there an artist that you would never want on the show because you either don't like them or you don't believe with perhaps their politics or perhaps the way their politics have developed over time? You, you know, there are some artists that have changed a little bit. Ian Brown. So I just want I, I just wonder if there's anyone that if their publicist came to you and said, Oh, great new album. We know you like talking about the current and then going back to the past, blah, blah, blah. Would you like to feature them? And you'd say, Not a chance. Think you're an I, idiot. I think we would definitely turn down people who, you know, act like dickheads on Twitter or have like <laughs> fascist <laughs> politics or um you know, don't believe in vaccines or, you know, if there's, I'm sure there's plenty of people out there. I mean, to be quite honest with almost anyone, you can find something about the songwriting craft or their creativity that's worth chatting about. Yeah. But there are people out there that are objectionable um, for all kinds of reasons that we wouldn't want to um, sit down with them. You know, if they're a bit of a crank, then maybe. Yeah, you've got, um, it helps if you like the person. There's plenty of other people who we are excited about. So we would, we just wouldn't entertain forcing our way through an interview with someone we didn't care yeah. for. I don't think. Yeah. Um, there's one person I won't say who it is, but who we interviewed him quite a few years ago. It's another, he, he's become an absolute horror show on, on Twitter over the, over the years. As I might know who I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, and it's kind of mortifying, you know, cause it, we, we, you know, we had a good chat with the guy, but you, you know, you look at some of the stuff he posts and stuff. God, you know, um, what can you do? Let's leave it at that. Okay, last question, and it's an obvious one, I suppose. Um, who would you still like to get on the show that you have been unable to so far? I mean, the list is, is just as long as your arm, really. There's, there's so many. There's the obvious big names that we haven't had on yet, the Springsteens, the Randy Newmans, the Dolly Partons. If you had um, to identify one, who would it be? You said you, you've only allowed to do one more show of Soda Jerker on songwriting. <laughs> Who you're going to have as your final guest, and it can be anyone. So, should should we have one each? So, I'm sorry that the podcast is coming to an end, and it's your final show. But <laughs> I don't know. This is a shock to me, to be honest. Yeah, I'm really. <laughs> yeah. oh, the record companies are sick of you. You know. <laughs> I'd absolutely love to have Barry Gibbon. Oh yes, and that's not Barry Gibbon. You know, from uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> to have Barry Gibb on the show because um, I just think he'd really enjoy. The experience and we'd get a lot out of him i think that people haven't ever bothered to ask him about and he's got that kind of northern background and i think mm-hmm. he'd just relate to us and i'd love to actually talk about his songwriting okay. uh, for me it's randy newman springs oh. to mind yeah big fan of randy newman I mean, he's been interviewed quite extensively before about songwriting i guess but um not for a while so yeah, before we uh, before we bow out, I'd like to get Randy. I will. We'll that, sorry, that sounded very wrong. It's all got a bit carry on. This this awkward silence we're now going to leave in, I think, because that was terrific. <laughs> Just and think of Sid James laughing there. Yeah, <laughs> or a, a gym. I think Dale that's snort. a perfect note. <laughs> no pun intended for us uh, for us to end on so brian o'connor and simon barber from soda jerker on songwriting thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of metapod we really appreciate your time all the best Our pleasure thanks for having us on thanks guys and happy Hello. anniversary oh, thank, oh, thank you, you. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to Brian and Simon getting Randy on the show. Randy Newman, that is. 
Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure they will. There's no stopping them now. They are podcast royalty, after all. I don't know. It can be lonely at the top. Oh, uh, kaboom tish. You're pretty good at this, Wendy. Yeah. All right. Well, for everyone else, that's the title <laughs> of a Randy Newman song. But really, thank you to Simon and Brian for giving us some time. It was a pleasure to talk to them. I have a lot of respect for their work on the podcast and always look forward to seeing who they're talking to next. As I said on our Christmas special episode, they'd be my ideal guests on the ideal live episode of Metapod, which is at a festival, just because their contacts book could come in very handy. Oh, and also they're very nice fellas. Anyway, you can follow Soda Jerker on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We've always put the uh, links for you in the notes for this show. So it's 2022, and Metapod has a great lineup of guests for the first few months of the year. You can check those out at metapodshow.com and follow us on your favorite podcast app, and you'll have all the episodes when you're ready to listen. That's right. And we will continue to cover a broad range of podcasts and topics with our guests. So there's always something to strike your fancy when you're ready to listen. Tell everyone what's coming up soon, Kev. Yep, let's strike everyone's fancy, shall we? So coming up soon, we'll be discussing automation technology, no less, with Jennifer Strong of In Machines We Trust. It's a terrific podcast. It's really good. A show produced in partnership with MIT Technology Review. We also have John Kennedy. He was a delight of Take Notes, which is an excellent podcast showcasing some of the backstories of song production with the artists and the producers themselves. But first, we're pleased, as we said in the last episode, to have Chris Warburton and Kieran Tracy on the show. They'll be discussing their 2018 podcast, End of Days, which looks into the British victims of the Branch Davidian tragedy in Waco, Texas in the early 1990s. Yeah, it's a really interesting story to go back to, and it was really nice that Karen and Chris were willing and able to share some of their stories with us, so join us for that. And as always, if you'd like to hear a certain podcast on Metapod, old or new, let us know and we'll see what we can do. Or better yet, tell your favorite podcast host about Metapod. That's Mm. the way to do it. There you go. Please do. Okay. Hopefully we struck some fancies there. So um, that's all for now, dear Metapod listeners. Yep. And we'll see you next time. Bye from us. That's it for Metapod this time. Thanks for listening. Metapod will be back soon with another unpacking of the web's most interesting podcasts. But in the meantime, make sure to subscribe at any of the usual places you find your other favorite podcasts. We'd hate for you to miss upcoming episodes, and we'd love it if you left us a review. You can let us know what you think of this episode by going to metapodshow.com. We'll see you next time. Metapod is produced by Wendy Morrill and Kevin May, 